All you 90s kids are going to know exactly what I mean when I say that insulin and glucagon are just like Nate Dog and Warren G. Because if in gluconeogenesis, the ATP supply is getting jacked, someone got to step in and regulate. This is how gluconeogenesis is regulated. Ketogenic diet has neurological benefits. Why do we have to eat such an enormous amount of food? Complex science, clear explanations. Class is starting now. In today's lesson, we're going to look at the primary ways in which energy status, insulin, and glucagon regulate gluconeogenesis. Now, it's important to realize that gluconeogenesis is also regulated by the stress response, and that's something we'll talk about in the next lesson. But in today's lesson, we're just going to focus on when you're in high energy status versus low energy status, when you have a lot of glucose and don't need gluconeogenesis versus you don't. How does that play out on the minute-to-minute and hour-to-hour basis in regulating this extremely expensive process that you can't afford to engage in unnecessarily? The slide on the screen shows why the liver's metabolism of glucose is more complicated than the metabolism of glucose in other tissues such as skeletal muscle. The liver is the metabolic hub of the body, and it's responsible for interconverting a lot of things to help the rest of the body meet its needs for energy metabolism. So you can imagine, for example, that glucose, as the centerpiece of our discussion, could be coming in from blood glucose. But the liver is also the most important organ in releasing glucose into the blood for its use by other tissues. So that glucose can come from the liver and go into the blood. Most other tissues are going to trap the glucose that they need and not take up any more. It's totally different for the liver. So the liver will always be taking in the excess of glucose that it can handle. And one of the things it can do with it is store it as glycogen. But again, the liver is going to release glycogen to make free glucose primarily for the purpose of releasing it back into the blood for use by other tissues. Glucose in the liver can also become pyruvate, and that pyruvate can enter the citric acid cycle. But the liver is responsible for synthesizing more than its own share of biochemicals within the body. So the liver, especially out of all the organs, is going to be very involved in biosynthesis. So quite often, citrate is leaving the citric acid cycle for the purposes of biosynthesis. Remember that citrate is moving from the mitochondrion to the cytosol to become the source of cytosolic acetyl-CoA, and cytosolic acetyl-CoA is what is used for anabolic synthesis. Now, it's not used for the synthesis of everything. We talked about fatty acids, but it's also used for other things. For example, cytosolic acetyl-CoA is also the building block for cholesterol, for example. For now, we'll just say that pyruvate from glucose is often coming into the citric acid cycle in the liver in order to provide citrate that moves into the cytosol to become cytosolic acetyl-CoA for the purposes of biosynthesis. Of course, that pyruvate can enter the citric acid cycle for the purposes of energy production as well. However, the liver also handles more than its fair share of amino acid metabolism. And that's because the liver is the primary organ responsible for disposing of excess nitrogen. So that means that amino acids that can come to the liver and need to be metabolized to get rid of the excess nitrogen could generate pyruvate, just like glucose could, for the purpose of generating that citrate or for the purposes of energy production, or other amino acids that don't generate pyruvate 
Still, their nitrogen needs to be disposed of, and so what's left over after you get rid of that nitrogen can enter the citric acid cycle and be used for energy production. So the liver is also going to use amino acids for energy at a much greater rate than most other tissues would. And since the liver can largely meet its energy demands through amino acids, then that means that glucose is going to, by and large, be left over as the principal source of biosynthesis in the liver, and its primary role will often be simply to make citrate instead of to be burned for energy because the liver's handling amino acids and getting rid of their nitrogen and burning what's left over for its energy. Now, all this can change depending on your diet, of course. So, for example, if you have less glucose in your diet and you have more protein in your diet, then that's going to accelerate this differential even further where the liver is going to be especially using amino acids for energy because it's not going to be the one to use glucose for energy when glucose is scarce because it has to provide that glucose to the rest of the body. And if protein is abundant, all the more will it be the one to use those amino acids for energy since it is the one that can dispose of their excess nitrogen. Now, the liver's need to coordinate all these roles implies that the liver's regulation of glycolysis and gluconeogenesis has to be a little bit more complicated than what we'd find in other tissues that aren't acting as the metabolic hub of the organism and are instead primarily engaging in these processes for their own needs. So glycolysis in the liver is largely regulated like it is in skeletal muscle, which we looked at previously in Lesson 21. But there are also additional regulatory mechanisms that are layered on top of this. One of those regulators is citrate. Citrate signals that you have sufficient biosynthetic precursors and it especially signifies glucose because on a mixed diet especially, glucose is going to be the primary source of that citrate. And glucose also supplies NADPH through the pentose phosphate pathway that is also needed in addition to citrate for biosynthesis. Alanine will be another key regulator. Since alanine can be a source of pyruvate, then alanine could either signal that you have more pyruvate than you need because what you do have is spilling over into alanine, or it could be a signal that you don't need to derive pyruvate from glucose as much, or you don't need to throw that pyruvate into the citric acid cycle as much because you have an abundance at least of alanine and probably in that case of other amino acids that can provide energy into the citric acid cycle. Another key regulator in the liver is fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. And this is a signal, we'll talk about how it's formed in more detail soon, but this is a signal that there is an abundance of glucose in the liver and in the body, so gluconeogenesis is unnecessary. And this is going to respond both to the flux of glucose in and out and also to insulin and glucagon, as we'll see shortly. The first aspect of what makes glycolysis uniquely regulated in the liver is what allows entry of more glucose into the liver than the liver needs for itself. And these are points that we've already discussed in the context of how glucose is transported throughout the body. The liver, like the pancreas, expresses GLUT2, which is a glucose transporter that's only active at very high concentrations. This is not to say that the liver doesn't also rely on GLUT1 and GLUT3, which are always active at normal fasting levels, but GLUT1 and GLUT3 are expressed by every tissue in the body, and they're what allow any organ to take up the glucose that it needs anytime. GLUT2 is expressed primarily in the liver and the pancreas on top of the other glutes in order to allow excess skimming off the top when the glucose supply rises above normal fasting levels. In addition to that, the liver has hexokinase 4 or glucokinase, like the pancreas, 
in addition to the other hexokinases that are operative in most tissues. And this acts similarly as GLUT2. So as the excess glucose spills into the liver, coming, being skimmed off the top of an increased load, then not only does GLUT2 become active to allow it to come into the cell, but also hexokinase 4 or glucokinase is going to convert the glucose to glucose 6-phosphate no matter how much glucose 6-phosphate you have. What's special about hexokinase 4 or glucokinase is that it is not inhibited by glucose 6-phosphate. Any other tissue will take in glucose as long as it needs it, but if the glucose 6-phosphate accumulates, it shuts down hexokinase, which causes the rise in glucose and causes glucose to not come into the cell and maybe even go out of the cell. That is not the case here in the liver. As much glucose as comes in also gets activated to glucose 6-phosphate no matter how much glucose 6-phosphate you have. That glucose 6-phosphate could be available for the pentose phosphate pathway or for glycogen storage. And remember, the, the liver is engaging in glycogen storage primarily for the purposes of releasing blood glucose later when it's not abundant into the blood for other tissues to use. And whether the glucose goes down into glycolysis is primarily regulated by phosphofructokinase, or PFK, which regulates the conversion of fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, the first committed irreversible step of glycolysis. And that's regulated by the need for glycolysis. Previously, we talked about how this is regulated in skeletal muscle, and PFK in skeletal muscle is regulated primarily by energy status because the skeletal muscle's need for glycolysis is pretty much all about its energy status. We'll see in the liver that to be regulated by the need for glycolysis in the case of PFK is somewhat more nuanced than it is in skeletal muscle. Phosphofructokinase, or PFK in the liver, is regulated similarly as in skeletal muscle, but with additional features. So like in skeletal muscle, PFK is inhibited by acidity. Like in skeletal muscle, it's inhibited by ATP and stimulated by AMP. That means it's more active when the cell needs more energy and it's less active when the cell doesn't need as much energy. Now, the pH and the ATP and AMP, these are all active in the liver, but they're way less important than in the skeletal muscle. Because in skeletal muscle, you can have huge fluctuations in your demand for ATP based on whether, for example, you're engaging in high-intensity exercise. So if your ATP and AMP ratio can be hugely variable in the muscle, those are going to become super important regulators of PFK. Similarly, low pH is not that important in the liver because the liver is not a major producer of lactic acid. In the muscle, you can make lactic acid, and if you're making it faster than you can extract it or reject it from the cell so that it can get into the blood and go to the liver, then you're going to acidify that cell. And during high-intensity exercise, you can have a major increase in lactate accumulation. Lactate does go to the liver, but many of its hydrogen ions are already released by the time it gets to the liver, and so it's not necessarily that acidic when it reaches the liver. And the liver is going to quickly convert it to pyruvate and send it back out into the blood anyway. So if there's a major energy crisis in the liver, or if there's a major problem with acidity in the liver, that will regulate PFK. But in the day-to-day, -day, it's not as important. The additional features of hepatic PFK are, first of all, it's inhibited by citrate. Citrate is your signal that you have enough citrate for biosynthesis. And so the liver is looking at this from the perspective of, I either need to use glucose because I need to get citrate for biosynthesis, or I'm going to stop using glucose because my job is when I don't need glucose for my needs, is to actually make glucose for other tissues. So citrate will shut down glycolysis because you have enough citrate for biosynthesis.
The second additional feature of hepatic PFK is that there's a second PFK. And so the usual PFK we'll call PFK1. The second PFK is called PFK2. Whereas PFK1 is responsible for actually metabolizing fructose 6-phosphate downstream into the glycolytic reactions, PFK2 is serving a regulatory role. The more fructose 6-phosphate you have, the more PFK2 will turn it into fructose 2,6-bisphosphate instead of fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. But what that does is it allosterically increases PFK1. So although you're making some fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, that's allowing you to amplify all the other signaling so that you make even more fructose 1,6-bisphosphate than you would have. And what this is doing is augmenting GLUT2 and glucokinase to allow the liver to send glucose through glycolysis not only when it needs the glucose, but when there's a lot of it. Now, we're going to come back to PFK2 at the end of the lesson to talk about how it's regulated by insulin and glucagon. But for now, we can just see that because the rate of a reaction is proportional to the concentration of the reactants, a basic law of chemistry, if you have a lot of incoming glucose and you get a lot of fructose 6-phosphate, you will get a lot of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate that will activate PFK1 and shuttle glucose, ultimately, or more approximately fructose 6-phosphate, into the glycolytic pathway, not simply because you need it, but because there's a lot of incoming glucose. Previously, we talked about how pyruvate kinase in the muscle is inhibited by ATP. And we said that's because if you take phosphoenol pyruvate and go to pyruvate, that's primarily so you can use that pyruvate for energy. By contrast, if you have a lot of energy and you don't need to break down more glucose for energy, that's going to allow you to activate gluconeogenesis from that phosphoenol pyruvate. And to do that, you want to inhibit pyruvate kinase to conserve the phosphoenol pyruvate for that purpose. In the muscle, the energy status makes a lot of sense because the muscle is engaging in gluconeogenesis for itself, not for the rest of the body like the liver is. And it's doing that primarily when its glycogen has been depleted and then it becomes higher in energy in the resting state. For example, high-intensity exercise, you deplete your muscular glycogen, suddenly you're at rest. Now, instead of needing more ATP, because you're at rest, you have some extra ATP and you reinvest it in taking whatever lactate and whatever else there might be in that muscle that's freely available for gluconeogenesis and using it to replete your glycogen stores. But in the liver, we have additional levels of regulation. The L-type pyruvate kinase, the liver type, as distinguished from the M-type or the muscle type, is not only inhibited by ATP, it's also inhibited by alanine. It's stimulated by insulin and it's inhibited by glucagon. Alanine, again, is, as mentioned in the beginning, alanine is a signal that either you have so much pyruvate that it's spilling over into alanine production, in which case, why would you need to make more pyruvate? Or you have this influx of alanine and other amino acids that can feed into the citric acid cycle, so why would you use pyruvate for that purpose when you can conserve it to conserve it for hepatic glycogen to release glucose into the blood? Insulin and glucagon, by contrast, are primarily communicating the body's supply of glucose as judged by the pancreas. Now, yes, as discussed in lesson 23, seeing insulin as a symbol of energy status in those other ways that we talked about is important. But none of what we said in lesson 23 changes the fact that you have more insulin when more glucose is abundant. And so if glucose is abundant, then you're going to be more likely to make pyruvate into pyruvate because you don't need gluconeogenesis. You can use that in the citric acid cycle for energy or biosynthesis. Glucagon is signaling the exact opposite. 
glucagon is increasing when you don't have enough glucose. And that glucagon is going to do the mirror image of what insulin does, the exact converse. So glucagon will prevent you from making phosphorinyl pyruvate into pyruvate and conserve the phosphorinyl pyruvate so it can enter into gluconeogenesis. In the last lesson, we talked about how the first two energy-intensive steps of gluconeogenesis are pyruvate carboxylase, which requires ATP, and PEPCK, which requires GTP. But one unit of GTP can be considered the equivalent of one unit of ATP. So we can essentially think of two ATPs worth of energy out of three being used at this step. Of course, it takes two pyruvate to make one glucose. So if we're talking about per glucose molecule, four of the ATP out of six are being used at these two steps. So unsurprisingly, these are regulated by energy status. Pyruvate carboxylase is inhibited by ADP, and PEPCK is also inhibited by ADP. Now, notice, even though the primary relevant mechanism is inhibition by ADP rather than stimulation by ATP, it kind of doesn't matter when thinking about how energy status affects gluconeogenesis. Because almost by definition, if you have more ADP, it's because you have less ATP. And if you have less ADP, it's because you have more ATP. So we can think of these two steps as being shut down by low energy status and stimulated by high energy status. And that makes complete sense because, remember, not only are these specific steps the ones that use energy, so the ones that energy status should regulate, but the basic process of gluconeogenesis is extremely energy-intensive. And so energy status, then, is going to regulate the two initial steps that funnel pyruvate or other precursors into the pathway in the first place. Now, to look at how this functions as a whole, we should integrate this with regulation of these enzymes that we've already talked about. So, for example, in lesson 16 on anaplerosis, that's when we first brought up the fact that when pyruvate makes acetyl-CoA through the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, that acetyl-CoA will, if oxaloacetate is available, condense with it because the delta G for the condensation of oxaloacetate and acetyl-CoA is extremely negative. Acetyl-CoA will accumulate if oxaloacetate is not available in sufficient quantities. And that acetyl-CoA inhibits pyruvate dehydrogenase, but it also activates pyruvate carboxylase. The end result is that if you have pyruvate coming in to make acetyl-CoA and you don't have enough oxaloacetate, you take a portion of that pyruvate and through pyruvate carboxylase, you make oxaloacetate. We talked about that in the context of anaplerosis in the sense that that oxaloacetate can then allow the acetyl-CoA to enter the citric acid cycle. But under the conditions that favor gluconeogenesis, that oxaloacetate will be used for gluconeogenesis, and pyruvate carboxylase, the same exact enzyme, will, in retrospect, when we look at the whole pathway that pyruvate goes through, be considered the first enzyme of gluconeogenesis. One of the most fundamental and key important regulators of whether acetyl-CoA accumulates under conditions that favor gluconeogenesis is the energy status of the cell. Remember that the dehydrogenases of the citric acid cycle are regulated by energy status. ATP and NADH are inhibitors. ADP and calcium are stimulators. ADP, obviously low energy status. Calcium, increased need to activate the cell and spend more energy. And remember that succinyl-CoA is what participates in the one generation of ATP in substrate-level phosphorylation, where we invest huge amounts of energy in ATP synthesis. 
And so if the inhibition by energy status of these incoming dehydrogenases is not sufficient and we're still getting more succinyl-CoA that can be used, that succinyl-CoA comes in and inhibits alpha-ketoglutarate dehydrogenase. And with NADH, it also inhibits citrate synthase. This inhibition of citrate synthase is the basis for acetyl-CoA accumulation when the liver cell has all the energy that it needs. In lesson 24, we talked about the regulation of the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex. And we said that high energy status inhibits it, as do all the products of its reaction. So the products of the reaction are acetyl-CoA, which inhibits it, NADH, which inhibits it, and carbon dioxide. Acetyl-CoA and NADH both inhibit it. These can also be seen as indicators of high energy status. Acetyl-CoA and NADH, along with the obvious indicator of high energy status, ATP, also stimulate the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase which phosphorylates it and inactivates it even further. By contrast, the cofactors of the reaction, NAD+, and coenzyme A, as well as the major substrate, pyruvate, all inhibit its phosphorylation, leaving it in the more active state. Insulin and calcium stimulate a phosphatase that dephosphorylates it, making it more active. Now, in the context of Lesson 24, we were speaking of this to make the point that insulin helps you burn pyruvate for energy. But now that we've layered in these ideas of using citrate for biosynthesis and regulating glucose versus gluconeogenesis for the purpose of saying, what are you going to do with your pyruvate and your phosphoenol pyruvate? Are you going to funnel it into energy metabolism versus gluconeogenesis? We can now see insulin in a different light where by stimulating the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex, insulin is overriding or counterbalancing some of the symbols of high energy status to say because glucose is available, turn this pyruvate into acetyl-CoA so that it can generate more citrate for anabolic synthesis. And by stimulating pyruvate dehydrogenase, insulin is conversely implying to the actual effect that you should not use that pyruvate in pyruvate carboxylase reaction for the purpose of gluconeogenesis. Because if you have insulin, you don't need as much gluconeogenesis. So imagine that glucose is generating pyruvate in glycolysis. That pyruvate comes into the cell. Insulin is going to stimulate the conversion of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA, an oxaloacetate is going to join to acetyl-CoA to make citrate. Citrate's going to enter in further through the citric acid cycle reactions. Now, in the context of low energy status, this is straightforward. We just burn that citrate for energy. But what if we have high energy status and we also have insulin signaling? What happens is that high energy status inhibits the downstream metabolism of citrate in the citric acid cycle, causing citrate to accumulate. Now, NADH inhibits the conversion of acetyl-CoA to citrate by condensing with oxaloacetate. But remember that this reaction has a profoundly negative delta G. So you can have a little bit of NADH, and that doesn't mean you're going to completely shut down the reaction you're going to slow it down, and the more and more and more NADH you have, eventually you'll shut it down. But if insulin is telling pyruvate to become acetyl-CoA and the concentrations of acetyl-CoA rise, then the availability of these two substrates will drive that forward as long as NADH doesn't accumulate to extreme levels. Now, if high energy status is inhibiting the entry of citric acid of citrate into the downstream reactions of the citric acid cycle, that's causing citrate to accumulate and be shuttled into the cytosol for biosynthesis. So because citrate's downstream metabolism in the citric acid cycle is the thing that's causing the main source of any 
is the thing that's causing NADH to be made. In other words, the citric acid cycle in the downstream metabolism of citrate is the primary source of NADH in the mitochondrion, then if citrate leaves the mitochondrion for biosynthesis in the cytosol, that's going to relieve the pressure of this NADH because now you've stopped the production of NADH in the citric acid cycle. So the end result is that insulin and energy status are fighting with each other to some degree. If citrate leaving for biosynthesis relieves the pressure on the citric acid cycle, then you can have a relatively slow leak of that acetyl-CoA into the citric acid cycle that fulfills the energy needs of the cell. As those are met, it inhibits the entry of citrate, and the citrate leaves for biosynthesis, and that insulin keeps driving pyruvate into acetyl-CoA and the energetic favorability of that reaction keeps allowing some level of NADH to be overcome and driving it into citrate. The net result of this is that the liver will fill its energy demands first. As those are met, the second step is for citrate to leave the mitochondrion because if the liver has enough energy, the citrate accumulates. It leaves for biosynthesis. That relieves the pressure of high energy status in inhibiting that reaction. And to the extent you have insulin signaling, you allow the pyruvate to go into citrate for biosynthesis. Now, remember, as we said before, that citrate will come around and if there's enough, will inhibit glycolysis all the way up at the beginning. But we'll come back to that. Now, imagine the case where you had insulin in the context of a caloric deficit. You will have insulin signaling favoring the conversion of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA. But there will be low energy status favoring burning of that glucose for energy. In that case, the caloric deficit overwhelms what would have been the anabolic stimulus of insulin. If you have a high-carbohydrate diet and you have caloric balance or excess calories, then that insulin becomes primarily a signal for anabolic synthesis, including the synthesis of fatty acids, because you don't need to go down into the citric acid cycle, but the insulin is saying there's plenty of glucose available for citrate production. If we put this all together, there are two conditions that have to be met for the liver to engage in gluconeogenesis. One is that it can, and the other is that it needs to. More specifically, it can because it has met its own needs for energy. And more specifically, it needs to because the rest of the body is in need of glucose as signified by the insulin to glucagon ratio. If we imagine pyruvate that came from lactate or from alanine or other amino acids, high energy status is inhibiting its conversion to acetyl-CoA and inhibiting the conversion of acetyl-CoA to citrate. So to some degree, acetyl-CoA is accumulating and to some degree, pyruvate is accumulating. The accumulation of acetyl-CoA plays a role in augmenting the inhibition of pyruvate dehydrogenase by high energy status and activates the alternative pathway, which is to convert pyruvate to oxaloacetate. That alternative pathway, pathway is viable in part because insulin signaling is low, and the lack of insulin signaling is not diverting pyruvate into the other direction. So the lack of insulin signaling and the high energy status drives pyruvate to oxaloacetate. Oxaloacetate becomes malate, malate, goes to the cytosol, regenerates oxaloacetate, and high energy status makes oxaloacetate converted to phosphoenolpyruvate. High energy status inhibits the conversion of phosphoenolpyruvate to pyruvate to ensure that when phosphoenolpyruvate is derived in this manner, it is conserved for gluconeogenesis. It goes to the reversible reactions of gluconeogenesis until it gets to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate which is 
subject to further regulation coming up in the next slide. Note that certain things are summarized here. For example, high energy status in this case is mediated by NADH. High energy status in this case is mediated by the lack of ADP. Same in this case. And high energy status in this case is signified by lots of ATP. Regardless of the specific mediators, the net effect is that when you don't have insulin driving pyruvate to acetyl-CoA and you do have enough energy, that energy drives pyruvate into the gluconeogenic pathway. Now, we finish this, we have fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. What do we do with that? Here's where the additional details around PFK2 come into play. PFK2 is actually present as a complex with another enzyme called fructose 2,6-bisphosphatase. Fructose 2,6-bisphosphatase takes fructose 2,6-bisphosphate and converts it into fructose 6-phosphate. That's taking the regulatory stimulator of glycolysis and converting it back into the fructose 6-phosphate that serves as the glycolytic or gluconeogenic substrate. The PFK2, by contrast, catalyzes, as we said at the beginning, the conversion of the glycolytic substrate, fructose 6-phosphate, into the glycolytic regulator, fructose 2,6-bisphosphate. This is called the bifunctional enzyme. And what regulates which activity plays out is phosphorylation. Phosphorylation, in turn, is controlled by insulin and glucagon. A glucagon-dominant condition favors its phosphorylation. Its phosphorylation favors activity of fructose 2,6-bisphosphatase, meaning getting rid of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate to get back to fructose 6-phosphate, the regular intermediate of the pathway. And that's all because glucagon favored the phosphorylation of the bifunctional enzyme. Insulin-dominant conditions favor the dephosphorylation of the bifunctional enzyme. That favors shutting down the fructose 2,6-bisphosphatase activity and activating the PFK2 activity. So when you have a lot of insulin, you take fructose 6-phosphate, the normal intermediate, and you convert it into fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, the glycolytic regulator. Now let's layer on what we had said at the beginning about this regulator. Not only does fructose 2,6-bisphosphate stimulate PFK1 favoring glycolysis, but it also inhibits fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, the gluconeogenic enzyme. Remember that fructose 6-phosphate conversion to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate is the first committed irreversible step in glycolysis. Fructose 1,6-bisphosphate going backwards to fructose 6-phosphate, catalyzed by fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, is one of the irreversible steps of gluconeogenesis. Because what we've done here is simply hydrolyzed the phosphate instead of trying to synthesize ATP, which we wouldn't be able to do. Simply hydrolyzing the phosphate releases enough energy to make this irreversible. So both of these steps are intensively regulated by the need for either one. Not only is it the case that more fructose 6-phosphate would favor more fructose 2,6-bisphosphate simply as a signal that there's lots of incoming glucose into the glycolytic pathway, but insulin, through its regulation of the bifunctional enzyme, causes you to get even more fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, which activates glycolysis and shuts down gluconeogenesis. Glucagon does the opposite. By stimulating the fructose 2,6-bisphosphatase activity of the bifunctional enzyme, it converts fructose 2,6-bisphosphate back to fructose 6-phosphate. The lack of fructose 2,6-bisphosphate because of these glucagon-dominant conditions relieves its inhibition of fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, allowing more gluconeogenesis, and relieves its stimulation of PFK1, 
allowing less glycolysis. In summary, between insulin and glucagon, a high insulin to glucagon ratio favors glycolysis. A low insulin to glucagon ratio favors gluconeogenesis. Glucose 6-phosphatase is the gluconeogenic enzyme that is the reverse of glucokinase, but it's the one that's mainly present in the liver and to a lesser extent other tissues such as the kidney that contribute to minor ability to synthesize glucose for the needs of the rest of the body. So remember, in muscle, for example, we can get a little bit of gluconeogenesis. In the brain, we can get a little bit of gluconeogenesis. But we don't use glucose 6-phosphatase to convert glucose 6-phosphate to glucose as the last step because we don't want to release that glucose into the blood, which would happen if you have free glucose in the cell. We want to keep it locked in the cell as glucose 6-phosphate to meet the needs of that cell. In the liver, and to a lesser extent other tissues engaged in gluconeogenesis for the needs of the rest of the body, like the kidney, we have glucose 6-phosphatase. That makes glucose 6-phosphate go to glucose for release into the rest of the body instead of for glycogen synthesis or use in the pentose phosphate pathway. And this step is definitely regulated, but its regulation is the least well understood out of all the gluconeogenic enzymes. We know that glucose 6-phosphatase is present in the endoplasmic reticulum, not the cytosol. To get glucose 6-phosphate there requires at least two transporters, one to get the glucose in, the other to get the glucose out, and in fact, a third transporter to get the phosphate out. And probably glucose 6-phosphatase and these three transporters are regulated to some degree, but the mechanisms aren't that well understood. We know that glucose 6-phosphatase activity, either because of the enzyme or its transporters, are stimulated by fasting and inhibited by feeding, which is what we would expect. And to some degree, this is probably regulated by the circadian rhythm, allowing diurnal or contributing to diurnal fluctuations in blood glucose as a result. In any case, the net result is somehow or another, the movement of glucose 6-phosphate into the endoplasmic reticulum so it has access to glucose 6-phosphatase comes out of the endoplasmic reticulum into the cytosol as free glucose to be released as free glucose into the blood. That, through poorly understood mechanisms, is stimulated by fasting, which is when you need to release glucose into the blood, and it's inhibited by feeding, particularly carbohydrate, which is when you don't need to release glucose into the blood. The slide on the screen integrates what we've talked about so far. Glycolysis is shown on the left, and gluconeogenesis is shown on the right. Glucose comes into the cell, and hexokinase metabolizes it to glucose 6-phosphate. In the liver, because of glucokinase, this proceeds according to the incoming glucose without significant regulation. Glucose 6-phosphate goes to fructose 6-phosphate in a reversible reaction. Fructose 6-phosphate goes to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate in the first irreversible committed step of glycolysis. Fructose 2,6-bisphosphate stimulates that conversion by stimulating PFK, and it reflects a high insulin to glucagon ratio. AMP stimulates it and ATP inhibits it, which means that if you have a lot of energy, you don't engage in that step as much, and if you need more energy, you engage in that step more. Citrate inhibits it, symbolizing that if you have enough energy and you also have your needs met for anabolic synthesis, then you'll shut that step down even more. And low pH, which could symbolize accumulation of lactic acid, will also shut that step down. In the liver, because the ATP demand fluctuates less than in the muscle, and because the liver is not a major producer of lactic acid, low pH, ATP, and AMP are less important. 
Fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, communicating the insulin to glucagon ratio, and citrate, communicating that the needs for anabolic synthesis are met, are more dominant. Fructose 1,6-bisphosphate then undergoes reversible reactions to generate phosphoenolpyruvate. Fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, not 2,6-bisphosphate, so not the regulatory molecule, but the actual substrate that's feeding into this reaction, fructose 1,6-bisphosphate, as a symbol that your phosphoenolpyruvate came from glycolysis and not from the beginnings of gluconeogenesis, stimulates the conversion of phosphoenolpyruvate to pyruvate. ATP inhibits this, making you not engage in this as much when you have enough energy, making you engage in it more when you need more energy. And alanine is a symbol that you have a lot of protein feeding into the citric acid cycle, or that you have so much pyruvate that's spilling over into protein, spilling over into alanine, prevents you from generating pyruvate in this step. Going the other way, pyruvate goes to oxaloacetate, and that's inhibited by ADP and stimulated by acetyl-CoA. So as you have accumulation of acetyl-CoA and as you have high energy status, there's less ADP, you get more of this reaction. Now remember that insulin drives pyruvate into the alternative pathway of making acetyl-CoA, which makes it unavailable to make oxaloacetate. So it's when you have lack of insulin signaling and lack of pyruvate being converted to acetyl-CoA. And the acetyl-CoA accumulating instead because high energy status is inhibiting its downstream metabolism, that you get a lot of pyruvate going to oxaloacetate. And the combination of high energy status and acetyl-CoA and lack of insulin signaling get you to oxaloacetate. High energy status, because of lack of ADP inhibition, then gets you from oxaloacetate to phosphoenolpyruvate. Phosphoenolpyruvate undergoes the reversible reactions of glycolysis backwards to get to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Citrate stimulates fructose 1,6-bisphosphatase, again telling you that you have your needs met for anabolic synthesis, you do not need to consume glucose, you can make it. AMP inhibits this, so when you have high energy status, you stimulate it because you have less AMP. And fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, which you have a lot of when you have a high insulin to glucagon ratio, inhibits this. When you have a low insulin to glucagon ratio because of carbohydrate restriction, you have less fructose 2,6-bisphosphate, you don't have that inhibition, and you go forward in the gluconeogenic pathway. The conversion of fructose 6-phosphate to glucose 6-phosphate is reversible. Glucose 6-phosphate is what you end up with in the little amount of gluconeogenesis that can occur in tissues such as the muscle, such as the brain, for their own needs, but in the liver, where the purpose of gluconeogenesis is to release glucose into the rest of the body, then glucose 6-phosphate goes into the endoplasmic reticulum, has access to glucose 6-phosphatase, and becomes free glucose. This whole process, the transport and the enzymatic activity, is stimulated by fasting, which is when you need to release glucose, and it's inhibited by feeding, which is when you don't. If you have free glucose in the liver, it will spill out of the glucose transporters and go from the liver cell into the blood to circulate to meet the needs of whatever tissues happen to take it up. You can also see on here that glycerol coming in from triglyceride metabolism enters in the middle. Lactate and certain amino acids enter as pyruvate. Certain other amino acids enter as oxaloacetate or one of its precursors. And as such, they may be subject to certain steps or not, depending, for example, glycerol skips over the first two major regulated steps. But no matter where they come in, at some point, they're going to be regulated by insulin and by energy status and by the amount of citrate that you have, signifying your needs for anabolic synthesis are met. 
to produce a much less complicated version of the previous diagram. You can take glucose and go to pyruvate in glycolysis, or you can go backwards in gluconeogenesis. You use glucose to make pyruvate in glycolysis when you have low energy status and the liver needs energy. When you have inadequate citrate for biosynthesis, so the liver needs to use glucose to get citrate. When you have a lot of glucose, signified by the glucose itself and by the high insulin to glucagon ratio, and that last point bulleted on its own when you have insulin dominance instead of glucagon dominance. By contrast, you go backwards in gluconeogenesis when you have high energy status because gluconeogenesis is expensive. When you do have enough citrate to meet your needs for biosynthesis, when there's not a lot of glucose, and when you have glucagon dominance instead of insulin dominance, to put it another way, gluconeogenesis is a very expensive process that the liver only does when it can and when it needs to. It can when it has a lot of energy. It needs to when the body is running low in glucose. The audio of this lesson was generously enhanced and post-processed by Bob Devodian of Torian Mixing, giving you strong sound and dependable quality. You can find more of his work at torianonlinemixing.com. If you want to keep watching these lessons, you can find them on my YouTube at youtube.com slash chrismasterjohn or on my Facebook page at facebook.com slash chrismasterjohn or you can sign up for NWM Pro to get early access to content, enhanced keyword searching, self-pacing tools, downloadable audio and transcripts, a rich array of hyperlinked further reading suggestions, and a forum for each lesson. So if you really want to own these lessons, study them, and get the most of them, you can sign up for MWM Pro at chrismasterjohnphd.com pro. All right, I hope you found this useful. Signing off, this is Chris Masterjohn of chrismasterjohnphd.com. You've been watching Masterclass with Masterjohn, and I will see you in the next lesson.